Well, happy Sabbath to you all. Welcome to our guests. We have 171 here today, so it's an overflow into our overflow room. I want to send greetings to you, uh, of course, all of our brethren around the world who may see this from time to time. I want to send greetings to you from our brethren in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and from Auburn, Massachusetts. Uh, my wife and I were privileged to be there last Sabbath, along with Mr. Jim Arnaldo, the associate pastor in that area. And, of course, uh, if you've never been to New England, it just was glorious. The autumn leaves, oh, it was so wonderful to be there. Um, my wife and I also attended my high school reunion uh, Saturday night in Meriden, Connecticut. And, of course, they always scheduled the reunions during the feast, so this was the first time we were able to have a reunion. <clears throat> it was our 55th uh, high school reunion in Meriden, Connecticut. So it's just amazing to see people you have not seen in 55 years. Uh, any of you have not seen people for 55 years? Uh, I'll tell you, it was uh, really ex an experience. And as class president, uh, I was asked to give a welcome and uh, the invocation. It's, again, amazing to see them, and about 60 of the 307 in our class are deceased. Uh, so, again, uh, I'll look forward to seeing them in the White Throne Judgment. We are nearing the end of man's 6,000 years of experimentation. We are in the end time. When you read the book of Daniel, you'll find the expression time of the end six times in his prophecy. We are in that time period. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the third chapter. The Apostle Paul prophesied the conditions that we are now experiencing. 2 Timothy 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Now in our church bulletin we have uh, news and prophecy. Uh, one of the items that was not in our bulletin but in the world ahead was one on the water famine in Yemen. And uh, you can see, read that. We have one back there, I presume, on the information table, the news and prophecy, where people are unable to get water, but get it only once every 45 days in Yemen. Can you imagine that? Just amazing. We are in perilous times. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In a very hedonistic society, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Oh, God gives us power. And from such people turn away. We have to be careful, again, with whom we attach ourselves. We don't go out of the world. We're to be witnesses and lights in the world and the salt of the earth. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away with various lusts. And we are in that kind of a society, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So are those, as Dr. Meredith wrote in the Tomorrow's World magazine, these are ignorant uh, atheists. These are atheist fools, he asked the question in his uh, editorial, and you'll be getting your new November, December 2009 Tomorrow's World magazine uh, probably this coming week in the mail. But they have not been able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But you, brethren, here and around the world, have come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 8 of 2 Timothy 3. Now as Jannes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Yes, people are resisting the truth. We have a number, growing number of agnostics and atheists and intellectuals who resist the truth, who are attacking God, who are attacking the Bible. They're anti-God, anti-Bible. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs was also. And, of course, he says in verse 13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So while many are resisting the truth, we need to stand for the truth. 
And the title of the sermon today is Stand for the Truth. We need to know the truth. We need to stand for the truth every day and in the days to come. Now, various ones of us may just be called into the truth and we're just in a learning curve. We're just being introduced to the basics and fundamentals of God's truth. But what do you stand for? What are your convictions? Do you know what you are probably still trying to sort out? Do you know what you know that you know? Are you able to give an answer for the defense that lies within you, for the hope that lies within you? In our, in our sermon library, number 293, always be ready to give an answer. So what are your strong beliefs based on the Bible? What biblical truths are you willing to stand for? And what biblical truths are you even now standing for? I've given you this quote before, but it's, uh, I think, apropos to the topic today. Uh, Peter Marshall was a Senate chaplain, and on April 18, 1947, he gave the prayer for the opening of the Senate session. His prayer began, quote, Give us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for, because unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything, end of quote. Many of God's people have fallen away. They did not stand. They were not convicted. Or if they were convicted, they allowed themselves to be deceived and to fall away. Let's turn to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians 6. And again, we know here that this is tells us about the armor of God. Dr. Meredith emphasized in his must-play sermon last week that God's people will be persecuted. So, brethren, we must prepare ourselves to stand strong in the truth. How can we be prepared? Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Now, some of us feel weak from time to time, weak spiritually, weak emotionally, weak physically. But he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. So there's something we must do. He's not going to put it on for us. We have to put it on ourselves. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. And Satan wants your mind he wants to deceive you. He wants to attack your weakness, and he knows what your weakness is. Do you know what your weakness is? I know what some of my weaknesses are. And I have to be very careful, because I know sometimes I might give in to those weaknesses. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Yes, the title of the sermon today is Stand for the Truth. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. What is truth? God's word is truth, of course, John 17, 17. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And those fiery darts are thrown every day. And take the helmet of salvation to protect your mind. What do you think? Are you disciplining your thoughts to be in harmony with God's thoughts? As he says there in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, and then on beyond. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your thoughts my thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yes, we need to take the sword of the Spirit. And I asked a couple months ago, how sharp is your sword? God tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit. The title of the sermon I gave a couple months ago was the sword of the Spirit. 
And this sermon is a continuation of that, part two, but the sermon this time is called Stand for the Truth. Many of you have uh, been improving your knowledge of the Bible. You have been sharpening your sword. But we must grow in that fundamental principle, know your Bible. We talked about Bible ignorance last time. Dr. Meredith wrote in the March-April 2009 Tomorrow's World magazine, the problem of biblical illiteracy. Even though the Bible is the most popular book in the United States, yet people are biblically illiterate. One survey showed that only one out of three U.S. citizens is able to name the four Gospels, and one out of ten think that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. (laughs) Noah had an ark, so Joan of Arc must have been his wife. No wonder pollster George Gallup has concluded that the United States is a nation of biblical illiterates. And that's from the Charlotte Observer, March 18, 2007. So God has given us a very high calling, and that was emphasized at the feast this year. We cannot, brethren, afford biblical illiteracy. I'm encouraged that many of you are learning the Bible more and learning more about the Bible. Many of you have learned all 66 books of the Bible. Many of your children can recite the Ten Commandments, some long form. And some of you are learning the original order of the Bible. And, of course, you need to know how the Bible is organized. So if you have not read Dr. Winnell's booklet, The Bible Factor Fiction, again, the center section is The Symmetry of Scripture. And it gives the seven sections of the Bible. If I were to give you a little test now, could you tell me what are the seven sections of the Bible? Three in the Old Testament and four in the New. I see Mrs. Lowe is shaking her head yes, so she knows. All right. At least one person knows what you all should know and has been in this booklet for years. All right. Thank you. Muslim children are encouraged to memorize part of the Koran. Uh, recently in Oregon, uh, there was a contest, a memorization for memorizing the Koran, a, a contest. In the competition, eight-year-olds memorized and recited 59 verses of Surah 44. Surah is a chapter of the Koran. Older students recited from memory 111 verses, of chapter or Surah 17, or 144 verses comprising about half of Surah 2. And to just recite that from memory took one student one hour to recite the 144 verses. So it's amazing how dedicated teenagers are and others are in the Muslim religion. Several, this is from the Oregonian, uh, September 19, 2009. Several judges for the contest have memorized all 114 surahs of the Quran, more than 6,000 verses. And that's about one-sixth the length of the Bible. And it goes on to uh, bring out, by comparison, the Hebrew Bible uh, or Old uh, Testament contains about 929 chapters, 23,000 verses. The New Testament contains 260 chapters, almost 8,000 verses. Historically, writes the Oregonian, many of the world's religions preserve their scriptures by memorizing them and still encourage followers to commit portions to memory. Some Muslim scholars have estimated that at least 10 million Muslims alive today, that's out of 1.5 billion of them, have memorized the entire Koran. That's about, again, one-sixth of the Bible. You think, if, could, could I go ahead and recite from memory one-sixth of the Bible? I'm not asking you to do that, remember. <laughs> but this is an amazing dedication by some. Let's understand, God does not expect us to memorize the Bible, but he does expect us to know it and to live by it. Some of you are familiar with the Ambassador College Bible Correspondence Course. Lesson number 51 commented on the Waldenses. 
And this is from page 10 of Lesson 51 of the Ambassador College Bible Correspondence Course, Complete Educational System. The early Waldenses practiced overcoming an education as a way of life. Men, women, and children made it their business to learn a little more each day according to each person's ability. We all have different abilities. They declared themselves to be resolved, and quoting from Neander's Church History, Volume 8, they, quote, declared themselves to be resolved with the Lord's help to embrace so far as their minds were capable of bearing it the truth of Christ and of his bride, small as their knowledge of it might be. If to any man more knowledge of the truth was given then, they more humbly desired to be taught by him and to be corrected of their mistakes. Below the college level, a system of elementary schools was later established. Both boys and girls attended. Even small children learned to memorize and recite whole chapters of Scripture. And then uh, from a short history of the Italian Waldenses by Sophia Bompiani, he writes, or she, Sophia, quote, long before the German Reformation, there were evangelical people loving the Bible above all things. Here's a group of people, probably God's people, who had a love of the Bible above all things, making translations of it into the vulgar tongue, spreading it abroad in Bohemia, in Germany, in France, and in Italy. They taught their children to memorize whole chapters so that whatever might befall the written copies of the Bible, of course they didn't have that many copies, large portions of it might be secure in the memories of their youths and maidens. In secret meetings, when they went by night barefooted or with shoes bound with rags, so that they might not be heard in passing. It was their custom to listen to the Gospels recited in turn by the young, each one responsible for a certain portion. And that's from A Short History of Italian Waldenses by Sophia Bompiani, pages 2 and 3. And it reminds me of the quotable quote I've shared with you so often, which I remember from uh, Dr. Meredith back in Big Sandy, back in the 60s or 70s. And that quotable quote is, Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Now, two months ago, when I gave the sermon on the sword of the Spirit, I asked for a show of hands of how many of you had fully read the Bible. I was just listening to uh, that sermon, and I estimated at that time, 91.3% of you had fully read the Bible. And I said, that's fantastic. So I am very encouraged for the 91.3% of you. The other 8.7% need to get on the ball. But, of course, we need to continue to dig into the foundational truths of the Bible. And I'll refer you to Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 9, if you're going to do some digging. We need to know the Bible. It's one of the basic principles of this sermon. Know your Bible. I'm going to give you a few reasons and why you should know your Bible. Why? Because our Lord and Savior expects you to know your Bible. If you want to turn, uh, well, I, I won't turn there. I did last time. But in the book of Matthew, Jesus challenges critics. Four times in the book of Matthew, he said, Have you not read? And an additional two times he says, have you never read? I don't think you'd want Jesus to say that to you. I will refer you to our sermon library, sermon number 353, read the manual. Of course, thankfully, most of you here in Charlotte have read the manual. But we're talk, of course, the sermon goes out to our brethren around the world, and I hope all of us have read the manual. Let's go to John, the sixth chapter. John 6, why should you know your Bible? Because Jesus expects you to know your Bible. And he, of course, is the bread of life. John 6 and verse 35. John 6 and verse 35. We emphasize this around the time of the Passover. But the principle is always true. John 6 and verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me 
shall never thirst. And verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Verse 56, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's the mystery of the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory, as it says in Colossians, the first chapter. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Yes, Christ is the living bread. And he tells us in verse 63, obviously he's not speaking literally here, he's speaking metaphorically. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. People are seeking life. And this is the mystery. This is the answer to the question, how can I find life? And Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But why should you know the Bible? Because Christ expects you to. Another reason is brought out in Matthew, the fourth chapter, the titanic battle between Satan and Jesus. And, of course, Jesus used the sword of the Spirit. He used the Word of God. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, he was tempted by three particular temptations. As you know, the tempter said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. And Jesus did not obey him. He fought with the sword of the Spirit, the Word. And what did he say? Verse 4, Matthew 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where did that come from? Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. Would Jesus expect you to know Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3? The second temptation came along in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you. So Satan quoted Scripture, misusing it. But how did Jesus answer? Verse 7, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And your marginal reference probably gives you Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. Christ quoted from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Then the third temptation. He said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Where did he quote that from? Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. Would you have been able to quote Scripture and fight Satan with Scripture, with the sword of the Spirit? Why should we know the Bible, again, so that we can stand up against sin, evil, and temptation. Ephesians, the sixth chapter, again. A third reason, I haven't been numbering these, but uh, another reason why we need to know the Bible is to stand up for the truth. So we read in Ephesians 6 and verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, so we need to stand for the truth. And again, he tells us in verse 13 that we take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand and in the evil day and having done all to stand, not fall away, but to stand. And again, there is a series of sermons in our sermon library, uh, Treasure the Truth, Live the Truth, and Rejoice in the Truth. And you can find those on our website. I won't turn there, but I'll just refer you to 2 Thessalonians 2.15, where the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So one other reason to know the Bible is to stand up for the truth. Romans 8.29 Give us a fourth reason for knowing your Bible. Romans 8.29. And again, this is such a, an inspiring foundational scripture. For whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
as we read the Bible, as we begin to practice it, and it becomes internalized, it becomes a part of our nature, we are pioneers of the new covenant. And the new covenant is Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, Jeremiah 31, that God will write His laws on our hearts and on our minds. So it takes God's Spirit to make us or help us to internalize so that we, by nature, Christ's nature, love our neighbors, and by nature, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that takes a lifetime that we are conformed to the very image of Christ. And we heard in the sermonette, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we need to know the Bible so that we can be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ, who is the firstborn of many brethren. We just discussed why you need to know your Bible. I asked the question before, how important is the Bible? Will you stand up to persecution with the sword of the Spirit? Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the third chapter, 2 Timothy 3. And we saw here in 2 Timothy 3 that perilous times would come. And uh, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that he had been persecuted. And that persecution leads up into a statement of the inspiration of the Bible. Verse 10 of uh, 2 Timothy 3. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecution, afflictions, which happened to be in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, where, of course, he was left for dead. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. So again, we trust God that he's going to deliver us. We pray for our brethren around the world who are oppressed, that God will deliver them. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors, we read earlier, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing, that, knowing from whom you have learned them. Who are you learning from? From whom are you learning? Are you learning from faithful ministers who know God's truth, have been tested and proved over many decades? You know, Dr. Meredith came to Ambassador College 60 years ago in September. And he's been tested and proven. And still God is using him with great enthusiasm, with great power. And we continue to pray for him and for his leadership. From You know from whom you've learned these things. And that from a childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Amazing. The Apostle Paul is saying, you have the Old Testament Scriptures, because that's all he had. The New Testament had not been canonized. You add to that the person and power of Jesus Christ, and you can have salvation. The Holy Scriptures, all they had were the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. As I brought out Theonustos, it's in Lesson 1 of our Tomorrow's World Bible Study course. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Very few of us like to be corrected. And Mr. Partian had an article in the Living Church News, Do You Like to Be Corrected? Of course, I don't like to be corrected, but uh, I'll have to, I pray for correction, and ask God to correct me gently, and sometimes He corrects me strongly. And it's painful. But we have to learn those lessons. And Dr. Meredith has asked many times in our executive luncheons and other times, is there something I need to change? What lessons do I need to learn? And we appreciate that attitude of teachability, of willing to change, of willing to grow. 
The scriptures are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Having the scriptures in your mind will help you to be prepared for persecution when it comes. What is your attitude toward the Bible? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I didn't bring with me Halley's Bible Handbook, but you can read all of the quotes from Napoleon to uh, Queen Victoria to uh, Daniel Webster, one of the great American statesmen, and, of course, the famous quote by George Washington, that it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. And we are in training to govern the world. So we need to know the Bible. There are two foundational principles upon which we base our life-changing and our life-establishing decisions. We must prove and know that we know that God exists and that He's the God of the Bible, that He's the God of creation. In previous sermons, I've challenged you to explain what proves to you personally that God exists and that He's the God of the Bible. And you know the traditional proofs. Of course, if you have not read uh, Dr. O'Neill's booklet on the real God, Proofs and Promises, I encourage you to do so. If you've read it, read it again. It's very, very inspiring, very encouraging. Creator, lawgiver, life giver, designer, um, sustaining the universe, fulfilled prophecy, answered prayer, and, of course, as Dr. Winnell brings out here, his proof number seven, a way of life that works. And we'll comment on that perhaps a little later. The second foundational principle is, in addition to knowing that you know that God exists, First John 2, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The second foundational principle, of course, is that we must know the Bible, understand the Bible, live by the Bible, and submit to the Bible as the revelation of God to us personally. And those two foundational principles stand for truth, help us to stand for truth, and to stand for the truth. I'm looking at my watch. I have enough here for another hour. How many, how many of you would like me? No, no, I won't ask you that question. Thank you very much, sir. That's worth 100 points to you. You anticipated my question. He's w- willing me for me to go another hour. Very good. I give points to you know my students and classes. In the remainder of the sermon, we will briefly discuss, as I have time, or we may have to go to part three, In the remainder of the sermon, we will briefly discuss five proofs of the Bible and five major benefits of the Bible. In the last sermon, I did discuss proof number one, fulfilled prophecy. And again, uh, Dr. Winnale's booklet, The uh, Bible, Facts, or Fiction, uh, gives you the example we gave in Isaiah, the 44th chapter in Isaiah 45, about Cyrus, who was named almost 200 years before he was born. And the prophecy was specific about the double gates that had to do with Babylon. And I read to you last time from the historian Herodotus and how he explained how Cyrus and his army diverted the water. The Euphrates River went right through the middle of the city of Babylon, the fortress of Babylon. And, of course, Belshazzar got the message, the handwriting on the wall, that his kingdom had been numbered and that he was going to die that night. And, of course, what uh, Cyrus and his armies did was to divert the Euphrates water so that the level of the water dropped so that, as Herodotus said, they could walk only with the water just up to halfway up the calves of their legs and go under the doors into the city and surprise the Babylonians and take over the city that night. That was a major example of fulfilled prophecy. And, again, uh, I referred you to uh, Dr. Meredith's book on the booklet on Prophecy Fulfilled, uh, God's Hand in World Affairs. And again, you'll find many more examples of fulfilled prophecy. 
Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel 2 predicted the four great world empires, the Babylon, Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greco-Macedonian, and the Roman Empire. And Daniel said, you are that head of gold. There's no question about the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's image. And we've shown that on the telecast many times. Another example of fulfilled prophecy, I may have brought that out last time, was in our July-August Tomorrow's World magazine. Uh, Dr. Meredith has referred to it. And that is back in 1950, in 1952, Mr. Herbert Armstrong was predicting that Eastern Europe, which was then under the strict control of the Soviet Union, would be released. And who would ever have thought that that could have been possible? And so we have quotes here on page 6 of the July-August 2009 Tomorrow's World from the Plain Truth magazine of 1950. And the Good News, April 1952, page 16. Russia may give East Germany back to the Germans and will be forced to relinquish her control over Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and other parts of Austria to complete the ten-nation union. Europe will have a free hand to destroy America and Britain as prophesied. That was April 1952. When did the Berlin Wall come down? Coming up here, the 20th anniversary, November 9th, 1989. Twenty years ago, the Berlin Wall came down. And those Eastern European nations, as Mr. Armstrong wrote, many years in advance, 52 from 2009, 57 years ago, so again, I'll refer you to that Tomorrow's World magazine, July-August 2009. There are many other examples, again, of fulfilled prophecy. God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. And there's a future test. If you say, well, I, I don't believe in prophecy, well, there's a test for you. And Jesus said in Matthew 24:15, when you see the abomination of desolations, Spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, stand in the holy place. Let him who reads understand, Matthew writes. Will you believe then? Will you believe that Second Thessalonians 2, that their man of sin will be prominent in the world scene? In Daniel 12:11, that from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Daniel is saying that there will be a daily sacrifice that will be taken away. And if there's a daily sacrifice that will be taken away, it must begin at some point in time. And the Third Temple Institute in Israel has been working diligently over the past decades in preparing for it. And they have tried already several times to get permission to have a sacrifice on the Temple Mount, and of course have been denied uh, every time. So proof number one is fulfilled prophecy. Proof number two is historical accuracy of the Bible. I have a book here called uh, The Luck of Nineveh, In Search of the Lost Assyrian Empire by Arnold C. Brackman. And it's always, I, I suppose a little satisfying to understand that when the critics uh, criticize the Bible and say there never was an Assyrian Empire or there never was a Nineveh to uh, have egg on their face because archaeology proves the Bible is accurate and historically true. I'll read the uh, foreword here. Uh, this is page VII from the book The Lock of Nineveh. In 1817, when Austin Henry Layard was born, there was no tangible proof that Nineveh, the seat of the Assyrian Empire, which reputedly had endured longer than any empire before or since, ever existed. There was no proof of what the Bible had of an Assyrian Empire and a city-state of Nineveh. For that matter, there was no evidence that there ever was an Assyrian Empire. Indeed, Layard considered one of the most remarkable facts of his day, 
that the records of an empire so renowned for its power and civilization were entirely lost. The critics, of course, ridiculed the Bible, which referred to both Nineveh and Assyria. And, of course, it's mentioned, uh, Brackman writes on page 12, in the Old and New Testaments, Nineveh is mentioned 20 times, and in the Old Testament, there are 132 references to Assyria. An increasing number of skeptics, however, their religious faith diluted by the spectacular scientific breakthrough accompanying the first stirring of the Industrial Revolution, sneered at tales about Nineveh and treated it as a legend that belonged to an age of fables. For them, there had never been a Nineveh any more than there had been a Troy. That's from pages 12 and 13 of this book. So here are these skeptics that just sneer and slander the Bible. And yet here was this archaeologist who disguised himself as an Arab at uh, the danger of his own life and was able to go up the uh, Euphrates River and uh, heard about various uh, stories about uh, these tells or archaeological excavations, and he discovered Nineveh. And I've seen some of the artifacts from that in, uh, of course, the Chicago uh, uh, Museum uh, Institute and also, of course, the British Museum and uh, also in the uh, Cairo Museum. So there is overwhelming evidence to the historical accuracy of the Bible's description of that empire. I'll also refer you, of course, to Dr. Winnell's booklet on uh, fact the Bible, fact or fiction. But there's also many other booklets that, or books that tell you about archaeological excavations. This is Alan Millard, uh, Treasures from Bible Times. Uh, one of the artifacts that uh, mentions when Israel was uh, criticized as well, well, what evidence is there historically of Israel in Egypt? And this is a called the Israel Stela. I've seen it in the Cairo Museum in Egypt. And uh, this is what it says when it's translated. Of course, from an Egyptian perspective, they want to show that Israel has been demolished or demoted or captured or put down by the Egyptians. Canaan has been plundered in every evil way. Ascalon has been brought away captive. Gezer has been seized. Yenoam has been destroyed. Israel is devastated, having no seed. Syria is widowed because of Egypt. So the very word Israel, which people questioned, was there in the Israel, Israel Stila. If Israel was in Canaan by 1213 B.C. or soon afterwards, the exodus from Egypt clearly happened earlier. And this is, uh, again, um, commenting in, here's an example of the chance element in archaeological discovery. Without the Israel Israel Stila, and apart from the Old Testament, there would be no evidence that Israel existed as early as 1200 B.C. Proof number two of the Bible is historical accuracy. Proof number three is preservation of the text. Let's turn to 2 Timothy. Well, we already saw 2 Timothy 3. Let's uh, turn to Luke 24:44, which we've covered in Bible studies here in Charlotte. Uh, to so, show that uh, Jesus gave his approval of the Old Testament. Luke 24. And again, this is amazing when you think about it. When you think about the matter of uh, you know several questions. Has time been lost? People ask, well, how do we know that today, Saturday, is the Sabbath? Well, because Jesus knew what day was the Sabbath, and the Jews have meticulously recorded that time from now. Time has not been lost. And what about the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures? When Jesus said this, probably again between 27 and 31 A.D., were the Scriptures of the Old Testament preserved accurately? What did Jesus say? Luke 24 and... Verse 44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. 
So Jesus is making sure here, making very plain, that the scriptures that existed up to that time were accurate, inspired, and, of course, many referring to him personally. He, again, as I pointed out to you before, was, again, affirming the tripartite division of the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The Book of Psalms, of course, begins the section on writings, which you all know because you all know the seven parts of the Bible, as pointed out in this chart. The book of Psalms, of course, is the first book of the writings. And in Hebrew, it's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. So the law, the prophets, and the writings. And, of course, that's why the Jews refer to the Old Testament as Tanakh, T-N-K, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Then, of course, we have the, uh, let's turn here briefly to, uh, I can find it. Well, uh, while we're in this section, Matthew 5, verse 18. Matthew 5, verse 18. Jesus, of course, quoted from the Old Testament. The New Testament affirms the validity of the Old Testament by citing more than 220 direct quotes from the Old Testament. Some scholars affirm that there are more than 4,000 New Testament passages reminiscent of Old Testament Scripture. Matthew 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The jot and the tittle are those little marks in the Hebrew writing. Not one little jot or yud or tittle, those little tiny marks of the Hebrew writing would be um, taken from the law. Would no minds pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So even Christ um, approved of that. Now let me just mention here that um, Mr. John O'Gwin's article in the Tomorrow's World magazine, January, February 2002, How Did We Get the Bible? Quotes from the Companion Bible, Appendix 30. Speaking of the Masoretic text, which is the Old Testament, the text itself had been fixed by the Masoretes uh, before the Masoretes were put in charge of it. The Masoretes were authorized uh, custodians of it. Their work was to preserve it. The Masara is called a fence to the scriptures because it locked all words and letters in their places. It records the number of times the several letters occur in the various books of the Bible. The number of words and the middle word, the number of verses and the middle verse for the set purpose of safeguarding the sacred text and preventing the loss or misplacement of a single letter or word. Mr. O'Gwin comments, this meticulous attention to detail provides a background for understanding the literal truth of Jesus' statement in Matthew 5.18, that not one jot or one tittle would pass from the law. The jot reveals to the, refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the tittle describes a part of the letter. I could go on and on to mention, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they confirmed and affirmed uh, the existing manuscript of Isaiah, because uh, the again the uh, Qumran caves, uh, the Qumran sect was not approved by the Jews, and yet it affirmed the text of Isaiah 95 percent, and the five percent of variation consisted only of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. Let's turn to Romans, the third chapter. Uh, we could go on and on. This is a big subject, so I better. Uh, move on. We have a whole Living University course in, at the present time. It's called uh, the Biblical Text, uh, L-U-T-H-L-332, and uh, that comments, of course, and studies the whole semester on the subject. But here in Romans, the third chapter, we find the authority. You see, the Latin church came along and they uh, kind of promote themselves as being authoritative over the Scriptures. The Latin church is not authoritative. What advantage then has the Jew, Romans 3, verse 1, or what is the profit of circumcision? 
much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, or in the margin, sayings or scriptures. The NIV translate it. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. And so history shows how the Masoretes have been very careful and faithfully have preserved the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament was written in the Greek language, not in the Latin. And the Greek received text is known as the Textus Receptus. There are thousands of manuscripts that testify to the accuracy of the New Testament. And again, as in the case of Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll, variations in Greek manuscripts are minor and do not affect the message of Revelation or the fundamental teaching. So number three was preservation of the text. Proof number four is a way of life that works. That's also a proof of God's existence. Proof number seven in the Real God booklet. But it also proves the Bible. So you have answered prayer based on the Bible, and you have a way of life that works based on the Bible, prove both the Bible and the existence of God as the God of the Bible. But proof number four, a way of life that works, takes a commitment to read the Bible and to test its principles, precepts, and laws. First Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things. Hold fast what is good, and I hope you've done that. I remember the first time that I started tithing and realizing, uh-oh, you know, this is going to be tough for me. And uh, I remember the first time that I kept the um, tithe for the poor. I'll try to be careful here. God blessed me exceedingly abundantly. I had my first nonstop flight from Los Angeles to New York on a prop plane that took four hours and 17 minutes. That was the summer of 1963. And the speed from 1963 to 2009, 60, how long ago? 63, 46 uh, uh, years later has not improved. It's still about uh, four hours and 17 minutes if it's a good flight even today. Uh, so God blessed me with a nonstop flight, and what else happened? Oh, yes, I got this wonderful, got my engineering job back uh, in, in Norfolk, uh, Virginia, the same salary I was earning. And I, you know, I told my boss, former boss, after my freshman year ambassador, I wanted my engineering job back because Dr. Meredith was teaching in freshman Bible, The Boldness of Peter. And uh, so I thought, well, Peter was bold. I'll be bold, too. I'll ask my my employer uh, for the same salary and round-trip uh, airfare uh, from uh, Los Angeles to Norfolk, Virginia. And, uh, well, I can always get an engineering job in the West Coast in traffic engineering. And uh, my boss, former boss, wrote back, said, well, yes, I'll be happy to give you your former salary for the summer and uh, transportation expenses one way. So, anyway, I took him up on that Went back and uh, worked that summer. So God blessed me. Test God. And he, with the, when he tests us for, when we test him, as he challenges us in Malachi 3 from tithing, it'll open the windows of heaven. He certainly has done that for me. And, of course, I've talked about the whole way of life of Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The good understanding have all they that do his commandments. And we know that genuine Christianity is not a one-day-a-week religion. It's a way of life. In Acts 24, 14, you won't need to turn there, but the Apostle Paul said to Felix, the governor, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and in the prophets. So it is a way of life. And we have to be able to give an answer for that way of life. Number four is the Bible gives us a way of life that works. And that way, of course, is going to be taught in the millennium. So it isn't just anyone's idea of a way of life. It's a specific way of life defined in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we've heard at the feast, so every year, Isaiah 30 21, that they will see their teachers and they will hear a voice saying, this is the way. Walk you in it. 
We know that way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Proof number four was that the Bible gives us a way of life that works. Proof number five is answered prayer based on the Bible. I referred to this in my last sermon and mentioned, uh, of course, how many prayers have I had answered. And I gave you the example that I felt that in one particular instance that where I doubted that God had answered my prayer, six months later I got the feedback which affirmed to me that God had listened to my petition and had taken action on my prayer. And from that point on, even though I did not get feedback, I have faith that God has my petition in His hands, and He has acted on it or will act on it, depending again on uh, whether uh, it's His time, His will. But I mentioned uh, last time that uh, I was called in 1961, baptized in 1961, 48 years ago. And I prayed every day that I know of since that time and before. And so I figured 48 years times 365 days is 17,520 days. And I prayed each day. And I know that I at least have had one prayer answered for each of those days. So I believe I have had at least 17,520 prayers answered. Can you match that? (laughs) Oh, sure you can. If you've been around for 48 years or more. And then, of course, there are the promises of God. It says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. The acronym ASK, ask, seek, and knock. And you realize God gave you that promise. I've told you how many times I've I thought, oh, I just want some raw whole milk, because that was what being taught in 1961 when I was working for the Regional Planning Commission and never found it at the grocery stores or the supermarkets. And then I happened to open the Bible to Matthew 7, 7, and it said, ask. And I said, oh, you... Um, I won't say what I said about myself, um, unintelligent person. Uh, you didn't ask. And so I asked God for some raw whole milk. But then he says you have to seek, and then you have to knock. So I asked at the Regional Planning Commission, where can I get some raw whole milk? He said, well, there's a dairy out there in the county, you know, so I went to the dairy and knocked. It says Knock. It was closed. I couldn't get in. So I went out to the, to, uh, the dairy further, and uh, there was a, a dairy, and uh, it didn't look too great because the cows were swishing their tails and flies around. And, but I asked the farmer, I said, uh, do you sell raw whole milk? He says, no, I can't do that uh, on a personal basis. I said, where can I do that? He said, well, that Mennonite house down there, you might ask there. And I went there. And, the funny thing was, God says to knock, but I couldn't find the front door to knock. I went around the house two or three times. Finally figured out what was the door, knocked, and this woman came out with her bonnet, and, and uh, she was very suspicious because I had a jacket and tie on. She thought I might have been a government agent or something. But I asked if she could uh, sell me some raw whole milk. She said yes, and uh, she offered me some butter made from raw whole milk too. So you see, just simply ask, seek, and knock. God gives us these promises, exceeding great and precious promises. You know that Second uh, Second Peter, as uh, Mr. Lowe said in his uh, videotape sermon yesterday, one of his favorite scriptures, and mine as well, Second Timothy 1 and verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God gives us answered prayer based on the Bible. We just need to claim those promises. There was the old song, the hymn, we used to have in the Radio Church of God hymnal years ago, standing on the promises. One of the lines is, Overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. We overcome daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. 
I have five Bible benefits, but those are going to have to wait. And uh, we have been called to be pioneers of the new covenant in which God writes on our hearts and minds His law, His way of life, so that it becomes natural. We may have to memorize certain scriptures to begin with, but then they become a part of our thinking. They become a part of our nature. They become a part of our character. I previously asked uh, you how many had completed the Tomorrow's World uh, Bible Study course. And uh, when I asked that last time, I estimated that 20.3% of you had done so. How many of you are currently studying the Tomorrow's World Bible Study course? Can I see your hands? Oh, very good. Oh, that's a tough one. I think that's 31.2%. But very good. Glad you're studying that. But I do want to encourage those of you who have not to uh, begin studying the Tomorrow's World Bible Study course. You can do it online, of course. Mr. Charles O'Gwin uh, reported to me last night that on our line, online Bible study uh, course, we have 124 countries represented, and the last two were Chile and Slovakia that have joined us. So we have um, Tomorrow's World Bible Study course um, students in 120 countries, the last two of which were Chile and uh, Slovakia. So I want to encourage you to begin a reading program to official to read the official statement of fundamental beliefs. And as I mentioned last time, let's turn to uh, Amos, the eighth chapter, Amos 8, that there is a time coming when there will be a famine of the Word. And we can't take it for granted. You know of the death, deathbed repentance, that some think, well, I'm just going to go my own way until, uh, you know, I'm on my deathbed, and then I'll repent, and everything will be okay. What happens when the famine of the Word comes? Of course, that's uh, here in Amos 8 and verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord Eternal, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. What a horrifying feeling that would be if you were in that position. We want to be sure that we're taking advantage of what God is giving us now because he tells us too much is given, much is required. One of God's servants did stand up. We need that deep conviction that God's word is written on our hearts and on our minds because we will be persecuted the world will challenge us, but will we stand up when we're challenged? Will we have a defense for the hope that lies within us? Will we have an answer for the hope that lies within us? You may be familiar with the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp stood up for the Passover. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And while the apostasy was observing the day which became Easter, Polycarp stood up for the Passover. When he was arrested and brought before the arena, before thousands of pagans, he stood up for the truth, and he stood up for his personal relationship to Christ. You can go on uh, online and just Google martyrdom of Polycarp, and you can get this information. And this is Trent, the letter of the Smyrnaeans, or the martyrdom of Polycarp. Chapter 9, section 1. Polycarp, but as Polycarp entered into the stadium, a voice came to him from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. And at length when he was brought up, there was a great tumult, for they heard that Polycarp had been apprehended. Section 3. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, Swear the oath, and I will release you. Revile the Christ. Polycarp said, Four score and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
10.1. But on his persisting again in saying, that is, the persecutor, in front of thousands of people in the arena where he threatened with a lion and being burned at the stake. The prosecutor persisted again, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar. He answered, If you suppose vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and feign that you are ignorant who I am, hear you plainly, I am a Christian. But if you would learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and give me a hearing. I'll teach you about Christianity. Dr. Meredith's feast sermon exhorted us to remember our calling. He said, remember, you are Christian. You are Christian. You are Christian. It tells us in Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Mr. Lowe in a sermonette asked, Do we stand yielded as witness to Jesus Christ? Stand up for the truth of God. Know your Bible. So you can give an answer, so you can give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Stand up for the truth and fulfill your calling. Stand up for the truth and assist the body of Christ in fulfilling its mission in preparing the world, the church, and ourselves for the coming kingdom. Stand up for the truth. 